I know we don't like talking about uh, Elon Musk because it's a feeling you're just giving him what he wants. But look, he's a very powerful individual, so we should keep an eye on what he's doing. And he announced during the week that uh, one of his companies, his company Neuralink, has successfully implanted a wireless chip in someone's brain for the first time. And I think the ultimate idea, they say, is to help people with uh, neurological conditions. But there is increasingly a school of thought that a lot of these tech billionaires rather than kind of thinking deeply about what projects they're doing and the value to humanity, are just kind of copying stuff they read in science fiction when they were kids. So look, when we need an anthropologist around here, we call Jamie Saris, Associate Professor of Anthropology in Maynooth University. Jamie, welcome back. Thank you very much. Uh, Putting a chip in a person's brain is kind of classic science fiction, really, isn't it? It is, but like a lot of stuff Elon Musk does, it's done with a lot of fanfare, and it's kind of been done before. Um, So 25 years ago, a guy named Kevin Warwick, who was breading at that time, but I think he's now a Coventry neuroscientist, uh, biohacked both first his arm and uh, implanted a chip. I remember the guy, And then he implanted a uh, brain chip, and his... uh, (laughs) wife volunteered to do that as well. And so they were able to share neural impulses. You know, so if somebody, you know, that she could feel a finger touch, for example, a probe, you know, on his finger. So what Musk is doing is not particularly new. It's also very unclear exactly what it is. He's has only really announced it in a tweet which kind of shows one of the other things that Musk has done. He's not really a tech guy. He's a finance capitalist and kind of a showman more than anything else. And so the idea that you would announce something serious in a tweet next to what he has turned X into, you know, which would have anti-vax, you know, crazy Russian fascists and flat earthers um, is just a very odd way to sort of broadcast scientific ideas. Yeah. And I noticed a key part of it seemed to be they'll be able to charge the battery wirelessly seemed to be a, b- a big issue in it. He's also very keen to to colonize Mars. And again, back to the science fiction, it, that's kind of almost 1950s sci-fi, isn't it? Like Total Recall was, was kind of... A, Total Recall, yeah, but I mean... Like even, the, you yeah. feel there are more pressing issues he could turn his attention to, but uh, colonizing Mars, apparently... The idea that humanity is, is going to be saved colonizing Mars while the only planet that we are aware of pretty much in the entire, uh, <coughs> well, I mean, maybe there's one or two that might support our form of life. But if you look, where there was like tens of thousands of exoplanets, a handful of them are in the Goldilocks zone, have nearly our gravity, things like that. Um, you know, we have, we'll put a colony on Mars one day. It'll be an extremely costly venture. The people there will be under enormous kind of health problems. I mean, Mars is what, 38, 40% gravity of Earth, if I can, if I have that figure right in my head. And, you know, the longer, you know, if you look at that, uh, like six months of the International Space Station with anthropologists, or sorry, with, uh, with astronauts who are on the very, you know, extreme tail of fitness uh, dedication to detail and everything else. So they're doing their exercise. They're doing, I mean, they, they take an enormous health hit. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, spending years on Mars, you know, will ever be a viable option for lots and lots of human beings is 
silly on the face of it. So the frightening aspect of this is that you have thought more about the implications of colonizing Mars and how it would work than Elon Musk has in a way. It, 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 part of it is that it, there's a slight obsession with Armageddon with a lot of these tech guys, isn't there? The end of the world kind of thing. Is that a kind of is that from sci-fi again? Uh, that notion of the dystopian future. Yeah, and the the thing is, and this is I think broader in the society, certainly I think in the Anglosphere is that the idea that society follows technology, whereas, in fact, technology is conditioned by society. Okay, explain that yeah. to me. Well, we have the idea that, you know, technology changes everything, you know, that something new happens. And technology isn't without its effects, but technology comes along with particularly particular ideological kind of assumptions. It enters into cultural formations that are pre-existing it, uh, when the Fijians, I mean, one of the funny things about culture, human culture, is how rarely is any human surprised. When the Fijians saw a book for the first time, they had no tradition of literacy. Uh, they saw a convenient collection of cigarette papers. One of the really, so I teach a course on, um, uh, sometimes on um, aliens, mm. you know, uh, that supposedly visit Earth and, and do stuff. And one of the amazing things about aliens is how much they look like us how, how <laughs> you know and, that, and the thing about it is if you if you go if you play in the or immortal words of stephen jay gould the great science popularizer and paleontologist if you play the tape of life again on earth there is absolutely no reason to expect that an obscure branch of derived primates who would be kind of bipedal and use their head, you know, would be the, you know, would be the dominant intelligent life form. There's really no even reason to believe why intelligence as such, as we understand human intelligence, would necessarily be selected for. So the, the problem with, I think, billionaires being able to call forth a world is they have a vision of the world in their head that was written by folks, basically white males who were born in the early 20th century, who had some pretty wacky ideas. You know, um, if you, you know, if you look at uh, the guy named John Campbell, who edited Astounding Stories, um, very important in the history of science fiction and would have been kind of the granddaddy of many of the writers that folks would have written, like I would have written in the 1970s, you know, okay. and, uh, and he was, you know, he, Astounding Stories was like uh, Lovecraft published, you know, in, in there in the 30s. Um, but Campbell you know, was a big follower of, uh, of uh, L. Ron Hubbard. It, you know, uh, okay, when, who's the, the founder of the Scientology. Founder of Scientology um, until Scientology got too crazy. But, like, he really read Dianetics as a successful fusion of atomic theory and Freud. And anybody who had a modicum of education in the, the mid-20th century who read Dianetics just shook their heads, you know, whatever yeah. this is. <laughs> this, well, Elvon Hubbard was a, a, the, a failed science fiction writer, well, he, wasn't he? he, wasn't he, a fa he was he, successful he, enough at a yeah. penny a word, but he decided that establishing a religion was far more profitable than the business that he started out with. And so, you know, not to, you know, like, you know, the Scientology is probably no crazier than most other religions in terms of just generally, but the, I'm not hitting on the Scientology yeah, as yeah, such. Okay. Yeah. But, but that... This idea that, you know, there was a very narrow base of imagining the future 
yes. in the mid 20th century. And, and most and of these, those guys were these, a bit odd. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, and they, they were a lot of the time as well writing cautionary tales about the future and somehow have these tech guys have taken it as a kind of a handbook for the future. But some of them are cautious. I mean, most of the Pulp Fiction or the, the stuff that certainly in the 1970s was optimistic broadly. I, I Again, what the problem with a lot of these guys is they're not dumb by any means, but they're surprisingly ill-read. This you is know? the yeah, tech said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, uh, many of them are as much finance capitalists as they are tech. Somebody like uh, Thiel, Peter Thiel, who helped set up um, uh, 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 PayPal. Yeah. You know, and made so, his, so his thing, one of his big things yeah. is seasteading, isn't it? Which is like building these Under, independent libertarian countries on yeah. platforms in the sea. Yeah, yeah. And again, the, like, the answer to the question nobody was asking. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, you know, again, even if that is technically feasible, right, you know, libertarianism is based on, you know, like, like there's literally, it, it, it is politically rootless in theory. It is a it is a mid twentieth century phenomena. Some people point to Locke. Some people point to that. You cannot have read John Locke and be a libertarian, at least not have taken him seriously. And so, what you have are sort of half formed political opinions, <laughs> yeah. who are but but are sort of uh, supported by the assumptions that a guy that had was writing the fiction that you were reading in the 1970s. Thiel, for example, is a great fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. So famously, he has, his company is called Palantir. Uh, yeah. he, he wants to be immortal like an elf in Tolkien. If Tolkien met this guy, I mean, <laughs> I, like, I am a great Tolkien nerd, okay? But Tolkien's attitudes to everything about Thiel's sexuality to Thiel's ideas about a anarcho-libertarian kind of capitalist, you know, utopia or dystopia. Like, like yeah. you could not have started to explain that to Tolkien. You would have simply walked out of the room because you simply didn't have the the background, you know, the educational background to discuss an idea with him. And well, yet Thiel's worldview is in his uh, own head based on the Hobbit. And if and if you have a lot, yeah, if you have a lot of money. You know, and that is one of these kind. You know, one of the the drivers of this is, you know, billionaires are quite invested in staying billionaires, and they are quite invested in savage inequalities. It isn't that that class of folks has changed in the mid. You know, let's say if you were an American, very wealthy person in the nineteen fifties, imagining whatever dystopia you wanted to imagine, there was like a ninety percent income tax. You know, okay. up until the 1970s, it was in the 70s percent income. To, you know, so the these ideas aren't necessarily new, but there were guardrails that kept craziness okay. in check. We have, you know, we're losing the institutional guardrails, not just in society. Those are long since gone in terms of savage inequalities. We're losing them even within political rational discourse. Elon Musk is dedicated to a post-truth world. Yeah. Where you know, and and also the, the the very simple thing as well that these guys have become in many ways more powerful than than governments. Yeah. So just not to base it all on Musk. Yeah. So Zuckerberg then has spent billions trying to create the so-called metaverse. metaverse. Yeah. That's from a 1992 Nin science fiction, fiction. novel. Yeah. yeah? Snow, Snowcats or something. Uh, right. Yeah. I, that's one that I haven't read now. Um, but yeah, I 
I mean, the, the technologies that are there, you know, were imagined and they come in a lot of different flavors. I mean, the brain implant stuff was at the core of cyberpunk, you know, kind of imaginaries in the 1990s. Yeah. So Very actually few... comic book stuff, really. Yeah, George yeah, Dredd yeah, kind yeah. of 2008, yeah. isn't well, it? Well, I mean, you know, it, it depends on where you stand on anime. I mean, I have, you know, media studies and literary colleagues who take anime very seriously as a high art form. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, kind yeah, of thing, but, <clears throat> And mangas and things like that. But those visions of the future are not exactly nice ones, whereas... If you, you know, were really into Star Trek as a kid and didn't understand, you know, that they, it was very anti-capitalist, you couldn't really call it socialist, but it worked on a principle that at one point we were going to be a true post-scarcity society. And that was going to completely change any idea of accumulation, you know, and therefore there would be space for the common good. There'd be a fundamentally different orientation towards productive activity, distribution, and everything else. Okay. You had to be pretty dim. You know, okay. at, at, so at if, if only they had watched and understood Star Trek. <laughs> a little bit more. Could, <laughs> everything could have been completely or, or, different. Or, or, or Zuckerberg had gone through Harvard, you know, and, and, you know, been forced to complete a degree. Many of these folks start a year or two. Ironically, a lot of the early science fiction guys were like that a lot. John Campbell, for example, started uh, studying physics at both MIT and I think Princeton and sort of washed out of those and was hostile to universities the rest of his life. Of course. Yeah. You know, so, felt, so. felt that he was a generalist kind of thinker and the specialist never really got him. Oh, yeah. So you know? I, I think yeah. you used yeah. the phrase half-assed earlier. Yeah, yeah. Half-assed is, seems to sum up a lot of this. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mind blowed, I have to say. The world is, I'm more convinced than ever, the world is turning into a cartoon. Anthropologist Jamie Saras, thank you very much. We'll take a break.